0: Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, you have told us what is good and what you desire of us in terms of how we live in light of what you have done for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would, in fact, put away these things that were just read, and that we would put on righteousness, and holiness as we seek to follow Christ. Father, help us as we deal with this passage now to deal with the sin in our own lives, that we may gain victory over it, and that we might live lives that truly reflect your glory and give honor to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we can all agree that grace is amazing, We sing the words of that song, and and we get familiar with those words, and yet when we think about them, we recognize that grace really is amazing. If you've ever received an email from me, uh, you'll know that I think grace is amazing too, and I never want to get over the wonder of the grace of God. I want always to be still amazed by grace, we want never to use grace, though, as an excuse for sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? More sin, more opportunity than for God to give grace. That's what the Romans were saying. So if we sin more, God will have opportunity to give more grace. And Paul addresses that in the harshest terms. And it's for that reason as well that Paul was really ticked off at the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians because it's what they were trying to do. In chapter 5, we read about a man in their church who was living in sin with his stepmother. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. In fact, the church considered it a mark of maturity to leave it alone. Let grace abound in that situation. And so Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, what they were to do. They were to put the man out of the fellowship. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul had to state his case sharply to get them to take action on this sin in the body that they were putting up with. And when Paul would write them again in 2 Corinthians, in these passages that we were just looking at, dealing apparently with a different situation than that one, one where there was repentance, he makes a very important distinction. And that distinction goes to the heart of our topic today, which is dealing with sin. It's a distinction that will spell the difference between overcoming sin in our lives and being overcome by it. The distinction is between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief and worldly grief. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief is Peter broken by his denial of even knowing Jesus and turning to him for forgiveness. Worldly grief is Judas overwhelmed by the enormity of his sin and taking his own life. Godly grief is you or me uh, confessing our sin to God and allowing him to change our hearts and ultimately to change our actions. Worldly grief is you or me thinking God could never forgive us or never forgive us again and getting stuck in our sin. Godly grief Produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The passage we're looking at today in Ezra 9 and 10 has to do with dealing with sin. And dealing with sin is never easy, it's never comfortable for us as individuals and for the church as a body. It's particularly difficult to do in the context of the body of believers when sin needs to be confronted in a more public way. When a person needs to be disciplined or ultimately to be put out of the body. That's difficult because not everybody's going to have the whole story. And not everybody should have the whole story So not everyone's going to understand, but in this painful part of ministry, the leaders need to lead. This is why you elect godly leaders, and the people need to trust and pray, knowing that church discipline is always done with tears, always done with the goal of restoration. I don't say that because I'm about to shock you uh, with some revelation of sin in the body. Relax. I say it because it's the subject of our text today as we close out the book of Ezra. Ezra shows us well how to deal with sin. One of the things we will notice is that as the leaders lead, the people follow. The leaders led into sin, and the people followed them there. The leaders in Ezra's day led into repentance as well, and the people followed them there. Ezra leads first into godly grief and repentance. The leaders then join in, and then all of the people ultimately follow. There will be a few who don't. They're named, some of them in chapter 10, verse 15. They will, though, be few In number. So let's look at Ezra chapters 9 and 10 together and see three main stages in God's people dealing with sin. And those stages are awareness, and then godly grief, and then repentance. Awareness first. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me. This is Ezra speaking and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself With the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. You can't deal with sin you're not aware of. And that may sound like a statement of the obvious, but I say it because sin is sneaky, sin has a way of creeping up on us. There's a Middle Eastern proverb that warns you not to let a camel stick its nose under the flap of your tent because if you do, you'll find that the rest of the camel will soon follow. Sin is like that. Sometimes it creeps up on us, and before we know it, we are doing something we never initially intended. When you look at it in retrospect, you can generally find the point at which you allowed it to stick its nose in. But it never seemed like a big thing when it happened, because it came on gradually. Kind of like the frog in the kettle. Throw a frog into a kettle of boiling water, it'll jump out faster than you can blink, but put it in cold water and turn up the heat, and gradually it will be cooked the same for us with sin. The Temperature goes up gradually, and before we know it, we're cooked. That's how it was with the sin at hand here in the last two chapters of Ezra. The particular problem was intermarriage. The people knew the Lord had prohibited intermarriage. They knew it's dangers, but pagan people were all around them. And some of them were really nice, people. I think we can relate. We're surrounded by people here in our culture who don't know the Lord. And some of them are very likable. We build relationships with them. They become good friends. Our sons and daughters may play with them and socialize with them and marry them. You've probably heard it from somebody. He's a great guy. He's no spiritual leader, but he seems spiritually open. He's been willing to go to church with her. She's having a good spiritual influence on him. And so they marry, and they're unequally yoked, as the passage in 2 Corinthians 6 talked about. I can't tell you how many times I've seen marriages struggle because they don't have a common foundation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I thought I could change him. I would urge you not to allow that to happen. Unequally yoked means a believer with an unbeliever. It means a mature believer with a carnal Christian. You need to have agreement at this most foundational level of your life together. And God's word is no less clear on that today than it was in the day of Ezra. So here's what would happen, an Israelite would marry a pagan, and this pagan spouse would bring all of their little idols into the house, set them up on the mantle, and and worship them in the house. And there'd be a mixing of the worship of the one true God with the pagan deities. And that sort of intermarriage was tolerated, even though the people knew it was wrong. I can picture people justifying it, saying, oh, they're in love, they'll work it out. Before you know it, the people God intended to use as a witness of his love to the world had lost their distinctiveness. Their worship had been polluted by an anything goes sort of spirituality that characterizes our age to a T. Not only did this intermarriage grow in popularity among the people in general, but the leaders got into it as well. Did you notice that at the end of verse 2? It says, So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land, and in this faithlessness the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. When Ezra arrived on the scene, the people were so accustomed to the intermarriage among them that no one had given it a thought in a long, long time. But Ezra brought the word of God. Remember, his task was to rebuild the community around the word of God. And the word of God brought with it conviction. So some of the leaders come to the realization they've put up with something for a long time that's very wrong. And they have the sick feeling that it's got to be dealt with. And so they come up to Ezra in chapter 9, verse 1, and say, Ezra, we've got a real problem here. So we see Ezra's awareness coming in these opening two verses of chapter nine. And so now is aware of the problem. And awareness leads, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, to one of two things, godly grief or worldly grief. Godly grief, Paul says, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Ezra responds here with godly grief. We see it in the next two verses. Look at verses three and four with me. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the, un, of the faithlessness of Of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Godly grief. Look at Ezra here. Does he look a little extreme to you? Ripping his clothes, pulling out his hair, sitting in stunned silence? Could it really be that serious? Doesn't the fact that everyone's doing it suggest it's not that big a deal? For Ezra, the fact that everyone's doing it is part of what makes it a big deal. This is widespread sin. Its consequences for the people of God are enormous. Think about the others around Ezra mentioned in verse 4. All who trembled at the words of the God of Israel and who joined Ezra in mourning over this sin. It's a good description, isn't it? We would do well to be described that way as people who tremble at the words of God. Not people who ignore the words of God or yawn at them or listen to them on Sunday morning and put them away for the rest of the week. The reality is, when you look at the Christian community in general, sin doesn't seem to bother us that much. Statistics would suggest that Christians don't live very differently than the culture at large. It's not because the culture at large is so spiritual. We've just gotten used to the sin around us, and we tend to fall into a lot of it ourselves. Keith Green has inspired me for a number of years. He had a, a song out that went like this: "My eyes are dry. My faith is old." My heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love, Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Does that ever describe you? My eyes are dry. My faith is old. I think Keith Green wrote that song because sometimes it described him. And frankly, sometimes it describes me. I think if we're honest, we'll recognize that sometimes it describes us all. And in those times, we need to cry out to God. We need soft hearts, hearts that can be pierced by the word of God, hearts that tremble at his word. Our awareness of our sin needs to lead us to godly grief. One pastor and commentator, Jay Vernon McGee, commenting on this passage, said this, If by some miracle God would change every cold, indifferent Christian into ten blatant infidels, get the picture, the church might well celebrate a day of thanksgiving and praise. The trouble with the church today is that it is filled with cold, indifferent church members. Perhaps many of them are not even saved. If revival comes, you are going to see this indifferent crowd either come over on the Lord's side or else they will make it very clear that they belong to the devil. I think what Pastor McGee has described there is a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief turns people back to God. Worldly grief only confirms them in their sin and leaves them stuck there awareness of our sin will lead us to one of those two things, godly grief or worldly grief. Worldly grief leads to death, but godly grief leads to repentance. And Ezra responds here with godly grief. And that leads to repentance on his part and on the people's part. And that brings us to our third point, repentance. Which really starts at, Verse 5 of chapter 9 and runs through the end of chapter 10. Repentance. To repent is to turn. It's to recognize you're going the wrong way and to turn and go the other way. It's the consistent message of the prophets. Turn. It's when you're going to Rockford by way of Madison because you went the wrong way on 90. And you realize you're a mistake and you turn your car around. And the sooner you do that, the sooner you get on the right road that will take you to where you want to go. And so repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. And it shows up in very specific, concrete ways. In Ezra, it shows up first in prayer. And Ezra's prayer is recorded In chapter 9, verses 6 to 15, I won't read that all right now, but it's a wonderful prayer that is really worth praying through ourselves. But would you notice a few things about it in verses 5 and 6? Notice his posture first. Verse 5 he says, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. The normal posture for a Jew in prayer in that day would be standing with his hands extended and his face turned upward to heaven. Ezra instead falls on his knees and is too ashamed to look. Up. Our posture in prayer says a lot. What's our posture when we pray? Do we reflect the honor we want to give to God by the posture we assume in prayer? Notice also in verses 6 and 7 his pronouns. He says, Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt for our iniquities. We, our kings, our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. Did you notice the pronouns our and we It's a recognition that corporate sin involves me. A number of years ago, West Point was rocked by a cheating scandal. And many young cadets were dismissed from the institution at that point. Not because they themselves were caught cheating, but because they were found to have known about it and done nothing. There is a pledge that they agree to when they come that says, we will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. And those who tolerated that sin were guilty of it then themselves. Obadiah, that little prophetic book in the Old Testament, deals with this sin of tolerance And says, on the day that you stood by and watched while her enemies sacked Jerusalem, you were as one of them. To allow things like that to go on is to be complicit, involved in them. Ezra uses pronouns that include him in the sin of his people. Notice also that Ezra doesn't fool around He knows what the consequences have been in the past. It's for their past sins that they were taken into captivity. In verse 8, he is aware that by God's grace, there is a remnant still left behind. And that is only grace. God could have judged them all. In verses 10 and 11, he knows they have insulted God by their behavior And in verse 15, he says he knows they are in no position to ask for anything more of God. This prayer is a confession without any request. Ezra knew too well what the people deserved. He had just come from where others were still experiencing it. Judgment, exile, captivity. Someone has said, in order to appreciate the good news, you've got to appreciate the bad news. I think we tend to skip over a lot of the bad news ourselves. We, we don't often take time to confess our sin before God. David said something really interesting in Psalm 51, verse 3. He said, my sin is ever before me. Why would he say that? Why would he Keep it there. I think he wanted to be aware of what it was God had saved him from as he delighted in what God had saved him for. Ezra understood the bad news. And really, the bad news is all he told the people at this point. So the repentance starts with prayer, but then it goes on into a proposal in chapter 10, a crowd gathers at the beginning of chapter 10. People join Ezra in weeping over their sin. And where Ezra knew they all deserved judgment, the people took responsibility for that sin. There's a leader named Shechaniah who says in verse 2, We have broken faith with God, but even now there is hope. Even now there is hope. And what Shechaniah proposes in chapter 10, verse 3 is a covenant. And that covenant includes some really drastic measures. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives, these pagan wives they had married and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. A covenant with some really drastic measures. They're going to send their foreign wives and children away. And we think about how drastic that seems. We need to see it in context of what was going on. The prophet Malachi lived at the same time as. Ezra and the other prophets who ministered in that time. And Malachi shows in his little book that divorce had become rampant among these people. They had actually divorced their Israelite wives in order to marry these pagan wives. Malachi chapter 2. And then we need to see also that this particular sin goes to the heart of their identity As God's people. With the pagan marriages came pagan worship and drastic corrective action would be needed and so this covenant. That proposal then leads to action in verse 5 of chapter 10 the people take an oath and promise to live up to that covenant themselves. Verse 6 shows us some insight into the man Ezra himself that's worth not passing over. Take a look at verse 6. Ezra then withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles." What he did at the beginning of chapter nine was was pretty public. What he does here in chapter 10 is very private. This is not for show. This is not some display of piety. This, he goes off by himself to continue his mourning over the faithlessness of God's people. Verses seven and eight tell us that a proclamation is then sent throughout the land to bring the people together to deal decisively with their national sin. And then in verse 9, we see them coming and assembling in the rain to hear of their sin and to agree about what they will do about it. And as the course of action is laid out, we see careful thought. There is nothing hasty. There follows three months of careful follow-up to deal with this sin. The last thing we find in the book of Ezra is a record of those who had been involved in this sin. Ezra names names, and the most notable thing about the list is that the leaders are first. They were first in leading the people astray, and now they would be first in leading the people in repentance. Repentance. So what can we do with a message like this? Let me suggest just three things by way of application. First, we begin with awareness. Are you aware of sin in your own life? And if you're not, why not? Is it because you're not involved in any? Is it because maybe you've gotten used to it? Is it because maybe you have cut yourself off from people who will be honest enough with you to tell you about it? Are you willing to seek out a godly, trusted friend, one who knows you well, and ask that person to meet with you and to pray with you about how you can reflect the character of Christ more yourself so that you can be better used of God? Awareness. The second point of application is does your awareness lead you to godly grief or to worldly grief? Does it create in you an eagerness to turn from that sin, to embrace the grace of God that forgives you, to serve God with a whole heart? Or does it lead you to despair, thinking you could never gain victory over that sin, God could never forgive you of that again? It's never too late for that U-turn. Never too late to turn back to God and experience that amazing grace all over again. There is help and there is encouragement and there is accountability waiting for you right here in this body of believers. And I can help you gain victory over the sin in your life so that you can live a life that glorifies the God who paid such a price to save you. Third point of application. After awareness and godly grief is repentance. If you're aware of the sin in your life, and if that has led you to godly grief, it's time for action, time to take concrete steps like Ezra did to turn from the sin and to get back on the right track. Confess it to God. Leave it at the foot of the cross. And then get help. Find a friend that you trust and can share with and ask that person to help you gain and maintain victory over that sin in your life. Take advantage of the resources that are available. One of the biggest issues of our day has to do with what we're seeing online. And there's a wonderful resource online called Covenant Eyes where you enlist the help of a trusted friend who then can see what you're seeing online and can help you be accountable. Awareness, godly grief, repentance. Take sin seriously. It's what led Jesus to the cross. He died there not only to give us victory over sin's penalty, but also over its power. And here in the body of Christ, you can rob it of its power when you become aware of it, when you allow that awareness to lead you to godly grief and allow that godly grief to lead you to repentance. When we will take sin seriously and deal with it when it comes up, we will become people, individuals that God can use. And moreover, we can become a church that God will use as well. May he be honored and glorified as we turn from sin and to him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would be a people that is aware of our sin, and I pray that we would be responsive to you in dealing with it. Help us, Father, to experience godly grief over the sin that comes into our lives, to turn from it readily to turn to you in repentance so that we can lead lives that glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.